the fact that it was Julius saying that, you know, God introduced Jema and then they gave birth to Paris. Wonderful. What would you call that? Um, okay, the way you look at it is, uh, yes, it was simple that Julia got together with Jema. Okay. Yeah. But I also look at it, you know, from God's sovereignty. Yes. Because, you know, later on in Matthew, you see that Jema yes. is actually part of Jesus' line. What would you call that? Redemptive irony, right? That's, that's another perfect example of redemptive irony. That God can take the worst imaginable thing and do something amazing out of it. We're about to see that with Joseph. As far as Joseph's vantage point going there was not favorable. But as he looks back on it, and as everybody looks back on it, we all bow before God. And sin was involved. So and that's where someone made the point uh, from the Bible Project that Genesis 50-20 could be a great summary of the whole book. That you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That all this evil in the book, somehow God is using for incredible good. So yeah, that's really good. Good thought to pull in. Yeah, we should have hit that. Someone else? Before we go on? Okay. So, Joseph gets elevated to come before Pharaoh. The whole time, Joseph is giving glory to God. 40 verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God. He's saying that to the guys in prison. Um, and then he meets Pharaoh in 41.16, and he tells him straight up, Pharaoh compliments him, and he tells him straight up, the interpretations do not belong to me, they belong to God. Um, and, oh, I'm sorry, I, re I repeated that. In, it, to Pharaoh, he says in 41.16, it is not in me, God will give, and that's what's important there. And then Pharaoh lifts him above everything. The only thing that Pharaoh's above Joseph in is the throne. So Joseph's got to control everything. And you see the same thing with the, the, the prisoner warden. They don't care about anything. They just leave it all to Joseph. And Joseph is a very Adamic-like character here. This is how it should have been for Adam and how it would have been with God working with him. He would have exponentially blessed the world like we see Joseph about to do. So in some ways, Joseph fills up Adam's role better than anybody in the whole book. Okay, so the famine, you know, the seven years of plenty come, and now the famine is upon them, and uh, Joseph has done incredibly well with the storehouses, and uh, Jacob looks at his boys and says, what are you doing? Go get us some food. And so the boys go. And now we are in chapter 42. And we find the first time of many that the brothers bow down to Joseph. Okay? And so they are bowing down, having no idea who they're bowing down to. But they're very happy to bow down to this person. And it just shows how God's, God's sovereignty, God said this was going to happen, 
And yet when these guys do it, they're all in it. There's no part of them that's like not wanting to do that. They're all bowing down. Okay, so they bow down to him, and this is where it gets uh, very, very interesting. Um, somebody, let's see, I want to check something. I just wanted to check out a word. Oh, by the way, Ur means guard. Guard. <laughs> yeah, it's not evil. I don't know. That now, Wenham says that, but he says it potentially means. So there could be another commentator that th thought, and that's where I got it from, or I just was wrong, which is very possible. But yeah, guarding or watchful, Ur means, apparently. So disregard that. Hopefully that's the only thing you have to disregard. Um, okay, so the brothers, look at 42 verse 11. Look at what they say to Joseph. Somebody read that for me. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Okay. We are honest men. What should that cause you to do a little bit? They're all liars. They're all, they've all been living a life, a life, a lie their whole lives since, <coughs> since Joseph's been gone. They're all liars, right? So it's, it's very funny. 42.13, somebody read that. Okay? And one is no more. And then when they retell this story to Jacob, after they go back to Jacob, they retell it and they actually quote Joseph's name, but they don't quote it there. Because uh, Jacob knows the name, but if they, don't, if they don't have to quote it, they don't. Why? Because it likely probably makes them... It's kind of like saying she instead of mom. All right? One and one is no more. Okay? But what's God doing? God is raising to the surface right now what they did. Yeah, what they buried. Exactly. Okay? He's raising it to the surface because God's about to deal with it. And he's about to deal with it in an absolutely incredible way. Okay? So, he puts them all in custody. Joseph does. All right? Acting like he doesn't trust them. All right, and while they're in custody, somebody read for me 4221. So while they're in custody, they said the reason this is happening is it's catching up with us. We, and this gives you a better picture of what happened when Joseph was in the pit. They said we saw him and he was in distress of the soul. So guys, this gives you a picture of what it was like when they sold him into slavery. Joseph was very afraid. 
and they went through with it. And now they are saying that distress is now on us. We're feeling it. That's why this is happening. What is this, what is this telling you? It's telling you that God is bringing to the surface their ugliness so that he can deal with it, okay? In his wondrous grace. That's what's going on here, okay? All right. So, it continues. Um, they, he, he, sends, he sends them home, but what does he do in the meantime? Yeah. Yeah, so let's see. Let's see how they do that. So let's go to um, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live. Verse 18 of chapter 42. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest of you carry grain for famine of your households, for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, and then this is where um, Emmanuel read. So, what is Joseph's deal? What's the, what's the bargain he strikes with the boys? Leave one of your guys, and I'm going to send you home with food. Okay? Thanks so much, Emmanuel. So, leave one of your brothers. So they leave who? Simeon. So Simeon's left, and they're headed home. But what does he do to their sacks? He, he puts back all the money in the sacks. So they're on their way home. They're on their way home. They open up their sacks, and they all have money in their sacks. Do you think that makes them happy or sad? They're scared to death, right? Okay, now, I want you to catch the irony here. You have... The brothers going home without a brother and more money. What does that remind you of? What'd they do to Joseph? They sold him. They all got what? Money out of that deal. And they came home without a brother. And now, according to the wisdom of God through Joseph, they're going home to their dad, richer and less one brother. Is it too much? It's too much. So, this is what God is arranging. And here's the worst part. Now, going home richer with one less brother, they have to somehow convince Jacob, whose new favorite is the other son of Rachel, Benjamin. So it's not like they got out of that. As soon as they got rid of Joseph, Benjamin became Joseph, right? So Benjamin's his new baby. And now they have to somehow convince him to let us take Benjamin. So, Reuben speaks up. But how much favor does Reuben have in Jacob's eyes? Zero. Zero. Why? Because he slept with his wife, so to speak. Yeah, he lost his honor. Reuben has no collateral with Jacob anymore. It's over, it's done. And you'll see that in the curse. He's, er, the, the blessing in Genesis 49. He says to Reuben, you had the nerve to come up into my own bed. He says to Reuben, all right? So Reuben is out of the blessing. So he has no weight with Jacob anymore. But who does have weight? Judah. 
Now catch this. Who's the one that brokered the deal to get Joseph into slavery? Judah. Judah. Who's the one that's now brokering the deal and pledging his own life to protect the new favorite Benjamin? Judah. So Judah is now having to broker a deal not to hurt the favorite, but to protect the favorite. It's completely flip-flopped. All right? And it's just getting started. It's just getting started. All right. So they go, they go back to uh, uh, Joseph. And um, as they go, this is the second time, chapter 43, verse 26. The first time uh, was 42.6. The second time is 43.26. They bow down to him again, okay? And um, we're, we're continuing on, and in 43, 23, 27, and 28, the word peace keeps showing up. Peace, 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 which is kind of comical, because is there any peace going on right now? No. But can peace with God be entered at any moment of our lives? Yes, if we choose to. We can enter day seven. So, uh, verses 43, 28, look at how the bowing down is getting bigger and stronger. Chapter 43, verse 28, and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. So it's like God's saying, I said that you'd bow down to him, but I want you to really feel bowing down, right? It's going to be your whole, whole self prostrating yourself. This is incredible. And they're all doing it of their own volition. They're not being forced to do this. They're all doing this. Okay. So, they all sit down to the table with Joseph. And Joseph feeds them. But he feeds them in a certain way. He gives Benjamin how many times the portion? I mean, guys, you just got to think about that, right? Think about, like, five coffee cups up here. And you're kind of like, hey, man, I mean. And he's the younger brother. And he's the younger one. So what's God doing? God is having all the brothers see another favorite and seeing how they respond. And look at how they respond. Uh, 43, 34. Somebody read that for us. What's going on? They're happy. Are you beginning to see that the, remember how you said what they buried had come up to the front? Are you beginning to see in that little phrase, and they were merry with him, that what was down there is starting to get dealt with by God. His favor in doing this is beginning to show them that they're being sanctified. They're able to rejoice and be happy and not be the favorite. Now, don't misunderstand. Like, Jacob's wicked in doing what he's doing with his favorites. But it is the way it is according to the sovereignty of God, right? So should you be bitter your whole life if you're not the favorite? No. You respond to the sovereignty of God and you be happy. 
And that's finally what we see the brothers doing. So, everything is going well, and it continues in 44, verse 2. 44, verse 2. Someone read that uh, for me, please. Okay. No, that's good. So Joseph puts the, his silver cup with money in Benjamin's sack. Okay? So then jump down to 44, uh, 12. 44, 12. <coughs> Stop. He chases up with him. Somebody, somebody stole. And... And um, I want to see uh, Judah. I thought Judah did Judah. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing, they said to him. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sack, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How could we steal silver and gold from my Lord's house? Whichever your servants is found with it shall die. The words came out of their mouth. And we also will be our Lord's servants. So, let it be as you say, let's search each man's bag, and let's start with the, who's the youngest? So all these guys, all these guys have to stand there and watch each bag get searched one by one by one, nothing found, and having the noose slowly tighten around Benjamin. And they're all watching it. And at what point did they start saying to themselves, please don't let it be Benjamin. Please don't let it be Benjamin. Of all of the guys, please don't let it be Benjamin. <clears throat> and he searched with the beginning and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now the brothers are faced with losing their dad's favorite all over again. And they are going to have to go home and tell him this again. They are having to do now exactly what they did. And look at how they respond. Somebody read that for us. Verse 13. Every man, it points, they all tore their clothes, every man loaded his donkey, and they all went back to the city. And this does not seem compulsory. It doesn't seem like they're making them do that. They want to do this now. They are actively now trying to save the favorite versus sell the favorite and get rid of him. Okay? And then it gets, it gets glorious. Somebody read um, 14... Oh, excuse me, um, 18. So they're back there, and look what happens. Keep going.
So what is Judah now offering? So God has brought Judah, who's kind of like, all right, let's not kill him. Now, that's best. That's best. Judah could have brokered the deal saying, all right, hey, guys, I don't really want to kill him either. Let's just sell him. Or he could have said, hey, guys, if we kill him, we don't get anything. Now we have an opportunity to sell him and actually make something off him. We don't know how bad it was what Judah did. Judah could have been lightening it and not wanting to kill him like Reuben. Or he could have been saying, if we kill him, we don't get anything. Let's get something. Like, we don't know exactly what Judah did. But we do know is that Judah has come full circle instead of mistreating the favorite he is now offering his life for the favorite. Do you see? And all of this is God's doing in Judah's life to purify who is going to be the patriarch, the next patriarch of the Messiah. And all the while, he's still purifying Jacob. Because now what has Jacob, like Abraham, had to give up? His second favorite son, right? His second idol. Abraham to get up Ishmael and Isaac, and now Jacob has to give up Joseph and Benjamin in this whole process, right? And then they convince Jacob, and this is where I'll summarize, they convince Jacob to go to Egypt, and they tell him Joseph's alive. It doesn't give a lot of detail on whether they told him exactly how he's alive. It doesn't tell you all of those things um, about what level of clarification comes between them and Jacob. Um, but that's between them and God, and apparently is what he wanted us from the narrative to know. And they go, and here's what's interesting. Do you know how Jacob goes to Egypt? Anybody remember? It's a small detail, but I think it's significant. Hmm? With who else? Who, well, his whole family goes, and there's 70 of them. Remember, that's important with the table of nations.
But as they all go, he's riding with the women and the, and the children. In other words, Jacob is exceptionally weak. He's having to be carried. And that's something you've never seen in Jacob's life his whole life, right? Jacob has always been the most independent person. He's really the most independent person in the whole, in the whole book of Genesis. Jacob is a guy, like I have one, one of our boys, his name's Simeon. He's our second oldest. I tell people all the, uh, he's named after the Luke 2 Simeon, by the way. But, anyway. uh, but I tell people all the time, if there's one kid that we had to drop off in a dark alley in some deep, dark city, and he'd be just fine, it would be Simeon. We could come back to that city like two months later, and he'd be like, hey, Dad, here, come here, I want to show you where I'm staying. Like, that's Simeon. It's just, he's got this, like, street smarts that's, like, good and bad at the same time, you know. And, uh, and that's Jacob. You can drop Jacob off anywhere, and he will make it work, right? Because he's a schemer. He's a conniver. He's an on-his-feet sort of guy. And so I think, and it's just conjecture, but I think him riding in a cart is showing a a broken Jacob. And I think that's supported because when he gets to Pharaoh, it's always a big deal in the ancient text, ancient world, how old people got. That was like really admirable if you were an old person for some reason, okay? Maybe like vestiges from stories of people that lived to be 900 years old, you know? Oh, you're one of, you know, you're like that, you know, or something. I don't know. But anyway, he gets to he gets to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is impressed because Jacob is old. And I want you to read, let's go to 47. 47, somebody read verse 9. All right, what are we seeing in Jacob? He needed to get carried because he's a broken down old man. And you see this in his response, do you not? Don't, please don't call my life blessed in a, in a me sort of way. My life and my years have been chasing the wind. That's it's the essence of Jacob's response. And it didn't measure up to my dad's. Interestingly, how old was Abraham when he died? I forgot to point out how old was Isaac when he died? 180. So Jacob dies much younger than these guys. And that's, and that's significant to point out. Another thing... That's very interesting, and it's conjecture, but where did, what, in what land did Abraham die in? Just generally speaking, Canaan. What land did Isaac die in? What land did Jacob die in? Outside of the land. Now, you ask yourself why. Well, what's interesting is John Selhammer points out 
that in the Ten Commandments, when it talks about honoring your father and mother, it carries a promise. And what is that promise? And Sailhammer says, is it possible that the, the leaving the land and Jacob dying outside of the land at a younger age and not living as long as his dad and grandfather was because, did he honor his dad? It's not to say that he wasn't going to get the blessing. It's just to say that Jacob never saw how God was going to give him the blessing, in a sense. It's, it's very interesting that potentially Jacob died outside of the land at a younger age because he dishonored his dad. Even though his dad wasn't very honorable, but he still should have honored him. Okay, uh, another interesting thing is, so they settle in the most beautiful part of the land in Goshen. It's just incredible. Some foreshadowing going on is that Joseph tells them, tell Pharaoh that you guys are shepherds. And you'll just kind of be left to yourselves. Why? Because Egyptians think shepherds are detestable, lowest, abominable, lowest of the low, which kind of gives you a picture of how Egypt's going to treat Israel very soon. Okay? All right. Um, and then another really cool moment where it seems as though Jacob is still doing really well is in chapter 50, or excuse me, yeah, wait, sorry, um, 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 um. Uh, for, 48, 48, 48, 19, this is the moment where it's blessing uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and somebody read verse 19, well, let's start with 18. Yep, yep, keep going, please. Thanks. So here you have Jacob. This is kind of like one last beautiful brush stroke of finishing Jacob off in God's image is now he is switching the younger and the older in the face, not of his dad who didn't like him this time, but in the face of his favorite son. So do you see how God could be setting this up to have Jacob experience the pain of what he did when it's his favorite son that's experiencing the pain. So he's, he's essentially doing what he did connivingly against his dad, and now he's doing it in the face of Joseph, his son. So he's going to feel the pain of Joseph probably different than he felt the pain of his dad, Isaac. So it's like God is just giving all these different angles of jo Jacob dealing with what he did. But Jacob uh, goes through with it in an obedient way to God because apparently Jacob had this knowledge of God of who is to be blessed. 
And that's a mysterious thing in the text. But Jacob had it. And he did it with Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay? Uh, Jacob dies. He's embalmed. And they go... Oh, James. Before he uh, dies, it's when he blesses his son? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. These are. Yeah, so I have. Yeah, that's a really good thing to bring up, too, that I haven't talked about. John Salehammer, this is this guy. So he loves this. He loves the Torah. Okay. He makes a huge deal about the poetry. And he says, anytime you see poetry, something incredible is happening. Um, and he makes a really big deal out of the blessing of Jacob, which of course it is. That's where Judah is officially chosen as the Messiah bearer. Um, so yeah, they are a, a amalgamation of humanity and divine coming. Blessing, a way to say what a blessing is, is a blessing, if I'm blessing Yepsiga, I am saying a prayer to God while looking at you. A prayer to God is just praying to God on my own. A blessing is a, a prayer to God while looking at you. And yet, a blessing in, in biblical contexts carries some sort of extra weight. You know, like, and I, I don't know, like sometimes... And I, it's something I really wanted to do actually more often. But I have blessed our kids before bedtime with the uh, number six blessing, you know. Oh, it's, it's emotional to do that. And, and blessing is very super, it's like very spiritual. I mean, you're, you're invoking God on the behalf of another while looking at them. I mean, it is like intimate, you know. And so... Um, and, and we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, you know. And Paul uh, finishes letters with a blessing. You know, I finish church with a blessing. Um, so it's, it's interesting, you know. It's, it's a worthy extra study, digging into to, to blessing. I have a book on it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to. Um, it traces blessing all through the Bible, specifically with the Old Testament in mind. Um, but yeah, definitely divine. There is something divine going on here. And yeah, you don't, yeah. Rebecca got it. We saw Rebecca get it from God. That who was going to get it. We got to see a picture of that, right? Where she somehow hears from the Lord, this is the way it's going to go. We didn't see Jacob get that from Manasseh and Ephraim. But he apparently had it. Because he's like, no, this is the way it is. You know? And Isaac... It happened to him blindly because he's spiritually blind. So it's kind of like God's blessing will go the way God wants it to. It's just a matter of whether you get to participate in it. Isaac didn't get to participate fully because he had it wrong. Interesting. Brian.
bless them, he blessed each one according to his own blessing. So it's, it's a prophecy at the same time, a blessing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's a cool thought on that. I, li- I like that. The, the, there is, the, the commentaries I've read say that when it gets to the end with the blessing, 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 that that's really stressing the blessing because it's the emphasis thing. But it's interesting, kind of the, the blend of human and divine. That's interesting. remember Esau's? Does anybody remember Esau's blessing? The one that like Isaac's like, I'll scrape the bottom and see what I can come up with. <laughs> it's not much for your old Esau. What was the one for Esau? We didn't. Does he say stop talking? This is <laughs> Does he? I, I can't remember. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me see. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live. And you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob. (laughs) So, um, oh, okay. So, yeah. You know, yeah, because when we think of blessing, we think, of course, something positive. Right? Um, But you definitely see it take these dark turns. Like... Reuben, I mean, yeah, read Reuben's out loud, uh, Brian. Guys, you know what this reminds me of? The judgment that's to come. I mean, you guys just got to think. Reuben's standing there, and all his brothers are there too. This is not like a private blessing. This is like going guy to guy. And in front of all his brothers, Reuben has to stand there and hear Jacob after he says it. It's almost like he went up to my couch. Is Jacob's add-on to the blessing slash curse, you know? Like, it's almost like he looked at his other brothers and said, he went to my couch. And then he continues on. It's so, yeah, these definitely, t- they're, they're in a sense like divine pronouncements. Um, and they can take either course. They're like predictions, they're prophecies, uh, um, as much as they're anything else. And so, yeah, you definitely see it. Where blessing has the semantic range to mean. curse in a sense yeah like judgment okay but judah's is beautiful judah yeah uh, yes core very good you're talking so that's the end of deuteronomy yes so we'll get to that that because we're what what we're going to get to this afternoon is that Leviticus is the, the middle of the Pentateuch, which draws a lot of attention to Leviticus. It's the shortest book of the Pentateuch as well. It's the only one that happens only at Mount Sinai and nowhere else. 
So it like exclusively has to do with this worship. But and, and, and other ways it's it's uniquely middle is how the other books reflect each other. Genesis is like Deuteronomy. The beginning book is like the ending book, in that the beginning book ends with the blessing of a, pa- of a major character, Jacob, and Deuteronomy ends with the blessing of a major character like Moses, right? And then Exodus and Numbers have a lot of similarities between the two of them, and then Leviticus is like its own thing in the middle. So that's a super good observation. And, and that's the type thing that the narrator wants you to notice. That's why meditate means gnaw. It means that you guys will be walking down the street just living life and chewing on some of this stuff and all of a sudden be like, oh my goodness, that's connected. You know, that's what God is after. Mikey said after class just how much he's enjoying the narrative art. And what I said to him, he says, I just love the narrative art. And I said, you love God is what you love. Because the narrative art is God's way to communicate himself to us. And, uh, and it's not just Torah. It's throughout the rest of the Bible, but it all starts in Torah. But it's, it's, it's getting a picture of God's character, you know. It's getting to know him, what he's like. And that's why at the beginning of class, the question about retributive irony and redemptive irony is such an explosive question because it this is what it is you know it's that sort of stuff that you're like his ways are not our ways his thoughts are not our thoughts but when we become aware of his thoughts we're kind of like his thoughts are incredible you know um okay so uh, real quick judah your brother shall praise you your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You stoop down. He crouched as a lion. This is thinking of Christ, the lion of Judah, right? As a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, very significant. He says to Abram, kings shall come through you. Leah has the name princess, royalty, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And Jesus says, all reign and domi- all power and dominion and authority given unto me. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is Psalm 2. The nations will bow down. Every knee will bow. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Guys, so you just need to catch the imagery here. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So here's the idea. What happens if you tie off your donkey next to a choice vine? The donkey eats the best grapes. Okay? What Judah's saying, or what Jacob's saying through Judah is a day is coming. What's, what's like your guy's biggest bill of money that, that, that someone would carry, like type thing? What is it? Notes, like just one note, 200. No, like, uh, uh, no yeah. 200. 200, okay. This is, this is basically what Judas, or, uh, Jacob's saying about a day that's coming through Judah. A day is coming where you, were, where you will start your fire with those bills 
That's what he's saying. If someone heard that, they'd say, no one in their right mind would ever tie their dumb donkey next to something that's going to eat that's of incredible value. No one would do that. It would be like us seeing someone take the most expensive bill currency of their area and say, hey, we got to start this fire. Can you give me? And you're like, no. like, that's what he's saying is coming as a result of Jesus. The day is coming. And then he goes further. You'll wash your dirty clothes in that wine. This is the best, the best wine. Okay? You'll wash your dirty clothes in it. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, what does Jesus do as his first miracle? And what do the people at the wedding say about the wine? Why'd you give us the, the weak stuff to begin with? And save this incredible stuff to the end. Usually it works the other way around. When people's taste isn't as good. Right? Because they've drunk. They've drank some. And they don't taste as well. And John points out that the jars that they took it from were washing jars. For cleansing jars. It's like the days of Judah have arrived. If Jesus can take water and turn it into the very best wine imaginable, it's like this is a picture. This is a picture of Christ and what's to come as Jesus' first miracle. And it even becomes kind of funny when you think of Jesus' first miracle because did he really want to do it? No. He didn't. Mary comes to him and she says, hey, they're so embarrassed. They ran out of wine. It's going to be horrible. They're going to be shamefaced in the whole community. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. And then he does it. So if that's a miracle that Jesus is like, okay, I'll do it, what's it going to be like when he wants to do it? And I'm playing with it, but anyway. Okay. All right. So uh, we get to the end. Joseph made the sons swear in 5025 to take him up. And we've already talked about how um, this is potentially indicative that the favor of Egypt is no longer going Joseph's way. Because if all Egypt, or at least a lot of Egypt, went up to bury Jacob, and Joseph has to make them promise to take him up, maybe the winds are starting to turn the other way. And it kind of like leaves you with an eerie feeling of what's to come. You got it? Okay. All right. So this is how, and then just remember, this is how Genesis ends. Genesis begins with life, presence of God, God talking to his people, walking among them. Genesis ends with, or Genesis begins with all that. Genesis ends with the main character dead in a coffin who God hasn't talked to his whole life and outside of the land, down in Egypt. So it's like life, death. And now this is where Exodus starts. 